Welcome to Midtown. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, and um, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you. If you belong to Jesus, uh, we believe that you didn't come to church this morning. We believe that you have brought the church into this room, so thank you for bringing the church into this room that we might worship together, uh, learn together, pray together, fellowship together, and mostly uh, be with Jesus together, who promises to be among us when we gather. So uh, we are nearing the end of our study of the book of Acts this fall. This is the second to last sermon. Next week, we'll wrap up our study in the book of Acts. And what we've seen is, is this church that was commissioned by Jesus in the first chapter uh, and then is incepted by Jesus um, in, the, in the second chapter where the Holy Spirit is, is planted in the in the hearts of the people, that church begins to grow, the message begins to spread, and this news, which is what the gospel is, this news of a resurrected rabbi uh, from Jerusalem begins to spread, and they were called by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus in the first chapter to take the message of the resurrection, starting in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We've watched that begin to happen. It's beginning to trickle out. And in uh, chapter nine, uh, an unlikely convert, Paul, Saul, gets converted on the road to Damascus, and it is only in the Lord's divine providence that someone who was persecuting the church is now promoting the church, taking this gospel message of planting churches to the ends of the earth all throughout the Mediterranean. So Paul gets kind of commissioned in chapter 15 to take the gospel to the Gentiles, everything that's non-Jewish, non-Israel, uh, and he goes. He goes on missionary journeys all throughout the Mediterranean uh, to plant churches in cities and in towns and in villages with the message of the resurrection. So we are tracking with Paul now. We're kind of over halfway through the book. We've kind of been um, speeding up the book process of basically the second half of the book of Acts is all Paul and his missionary journeys and looking at where Paul goes and what he encounters. Last week, we saw Paul in a uh, critical global city, uh, Athens in Greece, the, the cultural, intellectual capital of the world at the time, uh, and he, he shares the, the gospel there on the Oropagus, on Mars Hill there. Uh, now Paul's in another major city, Ephesus in Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey, um, and the story that we're going to read is not so much uh, an encounter with Paul, it's looking at what is the trickle effect, what is the domino effect of what Paul has done in Ephesus, and how does the stir in the town respond to what Paul has proclaimed uh, in Ephesus. So it's a, it's a large uh, portion of scripture, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21. Uh, we hear a little bit about Paul and some of his plans, but then we're going to hear about what is Ephesus, what's going on in Ephesus because of what Paul has proclaimed there. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21, says this. says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's a Greek goddess, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
And there is danger not only in this trade of ours may come to, into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that this city of of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly for we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And we had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us essentially far more detail in this story of Paul than he does in just about any other story of, of Paul. Um, it's 20 verses and there, there is minutia detail. There, there is drilled down like exact things going on. Luke wants to, whenever Luke adds detail, whenever any author is adding detail, they're trying to slow you down, like read through this because the, the kind of the devil is in the details. There's a lot of attention to be given about exactly what was going on in Ephesus. So Paul's in Ephesus. He's planted a church in Ephesus. He spread the gospel message of the resurrection in Ephesus. And this scene moves on quickly from Paul uh, and into the, the stir that is caused. Paul, we're told in the opening lines, decides in his heart that after this missionary journey, he's going to go back to Jerusalem to gather some resources. And then in the opening lines, he decides, I've got to go to Rome. I've got to get to the capital city of this empire. And so this is kind of a chronologically page-turning chapter. That's another reason why we're studying it, because Paul here kind of sets his intentions and he will go to Rome and he will not return. This is, this is a big deal for Paul to, to decide this in this chapter that Rome is on the horizon for him. But before Paul leaves Ephesus, we're told in verse 23, you can throw this up there, um, he says this, verse 23, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I love that, that phrasing, no little disturbance. That's what I say when my children are melting down. This is no little meltdown. Uh, this is a very large meltdown. Um, this, when it says there, there arose uh, no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, Christians, uh, the church in the early days of the, of the Greek and Roman empire were uh, referred to as the way. They were followers of Jesus Christ who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. So this is people of the way, people gathered uh, behind the way. So this is just kind of jargon, first century jargon for Christians. There arose no little concern, no little disturbance concerning the way. The church is causing problems. And here's the no little disturbance. Here's what has been challenged. Here's what is going on in Ephesus and what we read all about. In Ephesus, 
There was a massive, globally known, ornate temple to the goddess Artemis. Goddess um, Artemis was the goddess of nature. She was believed to protect and preserve all fertility of all living things. So Artemis was the god of living flourishing, that anything that had life, she sustained it. She nourished it. So she was goddess of the hunt to give life and flourishing to humans. She was goddess of wild animals, goddess of vegetation, goddess of childbirth, goddess of raising children, goddess of anything that had life and needed life sustained in them. She was the sister of Apollo and the daughter of Zeus in the Greek mythology. And there were at least 33 other shrines to her in the empire. In the Roman empire, this was the mother goddess throughout all of the Roman empire. In fact, many ancient historians would say that the cult following around Artemis was the largest cult following of any of the Greek or Roman gods, her counterpart being Diana, the Greek goddess, the Roman goddess Diana. So Ephesus in this, in this framework, because uh, uh, Artemis is the kind of most followed, most adhered to, most worshiped, most sacrificed to goddess in the entire empire, and Ephesus has the temple of Artemis in their town, Artemis and Ephesus became enmeshed. They became one and the same. And so there was an annual festival. I looked up the name of it, the Artemision. I loved like branding even existed in the first century. The Artemision Festival was when people would come from all over the empire, from Asia and from Europe, from, from Asia and from the Mediterranean, and they would come to worship this God, and there was music, and there was food, and there was arts, and there was creation, and there was a whole week-long festival for the worship and the sacrifice to this God, Artemis. And so, not only was the identity of Ephesus tied up with the worship of Artemis, but the economics of Ephesus was tied up with Artemis, that, that she brought in all kinds of tourism industry and all kinds of, 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 of industry and economic development and growth because millions of people would descend in Ephesus every year to worship the god, the goddess Artemis. And then on top of that, another massive piece of this industry, of this economic and identity going on, this economic and identity being tied to uh, the goddess of, of, of flourishing like she was, was that there was this whole side industry that would craft these um, microcosm temples and, and miniature statues of the goddess. And so it's not like exit through the gift shop and you got to get your little you know, Artemis trinket on your way out of town. It was actually, it served a very religious purpose that these silversmiths would make these silver replicas of her grand temple and of the grand statue of Artemis. And people would come to Ephesus every year and they would buy these miniature temples and these miniature statues. And it wasn't just like a souvenir from our trip. It was, no, let's take it back home and let's actually worship to and sacrifice to this little micro version of the temple and of the goddess. And so the, the religious, the economic, the, 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 all the things being tied together in Ephesus all surrounded Artemis. And so these silversmiths are doing some math. They're doing some logic, but they're doing some math. They're realizing if this guy, Paul, is going around saying gods made with human hands aren't gods at all, and now people aren't worshiping Artemis, now let's snowball that out and let's play this out. Let's see how this keeps going. If this guy, Paul, and these people that follow the way, if they're, if they're going to keep growing, then our industry is going to be threatened, and not only is our town going to lose an identity, but we might lose our very economic stability. 
It would be like if in Nashville, the music industry was severely threatened. It's not just, man, we have, a, we have so much money and so much economic stability that comes from the jobs and the production and how all that supports an entire industry. We also have an identity with it, Music City. So what if that be- became sincerely threatened and that was gonna be taken away? People would have thoughts about that. People would have opinions about that. People would have a response to that. So Demetrius, he's kind of the ringleader of the silversmiths. And this is how he addresses the people. Given all that backdrop, hey guys, we got a problem here. This guy Paul is going around saying something and that domino effect is going to hit us and we need to do something about it. So here's what he says. Darren, you can throw this up there. Verse 25 through 27, he says this. He's talking about Demetrius. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, this is Demetrius's logic being displayed. He's also really shrewd. Because here's what he's saying to them. He's saying, hey guys, Paul is threatening our industry. But hey, don't just make it about the money. Um, He's trying to steal the glory from our temple and from our goddess. But don't forget about the money. Like, but we, we also make money. It's like, hey guys, he's, he's, he's gonna take away all your money. If people keep worshiping this Jesus who claims to be God and these gods made with human hands aren't gods, our money's gonna go away. And think about the glory of Artemis and think about the glory of her temple and think about the glory of our town. Oh, but don't forget about the money. Like we, we really need, this is threatening our bottom line. And then something clicks in the people. That's kind of the opening backdrop, the opening scene. Uh, Demetrius lays that before the people and then something clicks. There is a riot in Ephesus. Verse 28. When they, that's the crowd, heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. You know how bad it is when it gets its own definite article, the confusion. Filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Okay, people in Ephesus, get, they're doing the logic too. They're going, wait, 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 wait. Okay, hold on. Two plus two is four. Paul's leading people to not worship our God. That's gonna not just affect our God and our glory and our identity. That's gonna affect our bottom line. We got problems with this. And so they drag this crowd and two of Paul's friends to the theater. Theater, ruins are still there today. You can visit them. It was an open air amphitheater, seated 25,000 people, which is a massive uh, amphitheater for the ancient world. It was a place for performances and actual theater, but it also became the place where town hall meetings, important town hall meetings were discussed and debated and voted on. And these people forcefully call a town hall meeting and they're chanting and they're screaming and notice the word there though, they were outraged. They were enraged. And so here's the question. Here's what's being set before you. Part of why Luke is slowing us down with all of the detail to not just say, yeah, and Paul had this little thing happen in Ephesus and it wasn't a big deal. Like Luke wants us to know about the outrage that was going on in this riot in Ephesus. Here's the question of the passage. Do you realize that when someone threatens the thing that you believe gives you life and security, 
you have the ability to cause a riot in you. That your and my ability to be enraged, to display outrage, happens when someone threatens the thing that we believe gives us life and security. In other words, when our idols are threatened, we get angry. And not the righteous kind, which does exist, rarely, but it does exist. When the thing we believe sustains us, provides for us, comforts us, and gives us our very identity, when that thing gets threatened, we become enraged. See, and here's a little emotional health 101. If you're angry, if you're outraged, if you're enraged, you cannot disconnect your anger from your fear. Riots expose what you're afraid of. Rage exposes fear. That's why the people of Ephesus are getting angry. That's why there's outrage. They're angry because they're afraid. What are they afraid of? Losing their bottom line, losing their wealth, losing their identity, losing their very sense of self. They're afraid of losing something that they didn't know who they would be or what they would do without it. Rage exposes fear. So here's a question. Where do you rage? Who gets your rage? And if you understand that, if you understand that rage exposes fear, if you wanna let your, if you wanna let your life show you something about yourself, not only where, where and who gets my rage, but what does that show that I'm actually afraid of? could come up with a whole list of things, whether it's an idol to Artemis or whether it's some romantic relationship that you're terrified of losing or terrified of not ever getting. And so you have fits of rage because if you don't ever get it or if you lose the romantic relationship that you're in, you don't know what you would do without it. Or whether it's a position at work that you've got and you've achieved and you've, you've climbed the ladder to get to and now everyone around you and under you is going to get your rage because you're terrified of losing it. Or maybe it's your own financial security. You've worked so hard. You've saved so much. You've earned this life. You've earned this bank account. That people, when it comes to money, no one gets to talk to you about your money because your money is the source of your greatest fear, therefore the source of your greatest rage. Or it's your children turning out okay and you demand that they be a certain way and end up a certain way and you're so afraid that they're not going to, that they get your age because they're seven and they can't prove to you that when they're 27, they're gonna be okay, but the seven-year-old's gonna get your age to make sure that the 27-year-old version of them is okay. Talking for a friend. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the reality of where is it that gets your rage is going to show you what you're really afraid of. Like I've worked my whole life to produce excellent work, to show myself and my parents, to show my world that I'm worth something, that I'll achieve something, that the work I'll produce is excellent and nothing can ever be not excellent. So if something's not excellent in your opinion, people around you get your rage because you're afraid of not producing excellent things. Whatever it is, If you tell me where you show your rage, I promise you I can tell you what you're afraid of losing. And because you're breathing, if you want to take this one step deeper, because you're alive, the thing that is normally being threatened in all of us, I'm not saying that every instance of rage is this, but most of them. One step deeper than this, the thing that's normally at stake, the thing we're normally afraid of losing and therefore the thing that normally riles up our anger out of us most easily, the thing that we do not want to lose and we will rage if it is threatened is our sense of autonomy. Autonomos, self-law. That's what that word means. Self-governance, self-rule, 
self-love. That one of the curses of becoming more self-aware is that many of us tend to only be aware of ourselves. And that tends to lead to this rage this rage-filled, fear-based existence. I'm so afraid of losing who I am and who I've decided I will be and I must be. I'm terrified of losing my sense of autonomy. I'm terrified of losing my self-rule that people will get my rage if that's ever threatened. In the words of the modern philosopher Terrell Owens, football player for the 80% of the room who has no idea who that is, um, me loves me some me. That's what T.O. said. Me loves me some me. Autonomy, self-love, self-law, self-governance, self-rule. Now, we don't have the time to chart this throughout history, but for the last half a millennia, in fact, some historians and sociologists would say that it actually started in the Protestant Reformation, this cultural reality. But our commitment to our own self-rule has been passed down for the last 500 years. You come by it honestly. It's been handed to you. We've been trained in it. We've been swimming in it. This idea that we will decide what's best for us and we will decide what we deserve and we will decide what we will sacrifice for and we will decide who we are. It plays itself out in a lot of ways from our demand to choose whatever we wanna be to my belief that I can spend my money however I wanna spend my money to my demand about my life that I will only suffer if I choose to suffer. And if you cause any suffering on me, then I am now a victim and I don't deserve this. Here's the the principle. Here's the underlying mantra for that. Get out of my way while I live my best life now. And if you stand in the way of that, you will get my rage because what I'm really afraid of losing is the ability to decide what's best for me whenever I want to decide that. That's what happens in the passage. Look at verse 30. We don't have to read it. Paul's friends won't let him go to the theater. Paul's going, I got to go defend my friends. I got to go help. And his friends are going, hey, dude, if you go to the theater, they're going to kill you because those people aren't just mad about their their bottom dollar. They are mad about that. They're afraid of losing a lot more than that. And they're going to kill you, dude. They're not there to debate with you. They are so outraged. The rage level is is so on 11. They will kill you if you go to the theater. Don't mess with my idols. Don't mess with the idea that I get to decide what's best for me. So in a nation of inalienable rights, it's been built into our very DNA of our wonderful country. We believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I believe in that too. But slowly, 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 over time, that trickle effect, as that has worked its way down into our 2022 realities, it has made us a people with an unchallengeable self-rule declaration. And so I don't just have the right to happiness now. That's what we said is true. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm now entitled to feel happy all the time. And I'm entitled to this reality and you don't get to tell me what makes me happy. I get to tell you what makes me happy, so don't get in my way. It's displayed powerfully, somewhat under the radar, on the Virginia state flag. Who's been studying their state flags recently? All of you. Uh, The Virginia state flag. It's one of the 13 original colonies. This reality is at the foundation of our country's convictions and beliefs. And in 1776, when this flag was commissioned and instituted, it meant something very different than it means now. I'm not saying they shouldn't have had this on their flag. I'm saying it has trickled down, and here's what it is. It has a picture of a woman standing on the throat of a king, 
Can't show it here because she's a little exposed. But the, the, it's a picture of a woman standing on the throat of a king and his crown is laying off of him. And underneath the, 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 the scene, it says, sick, simper, tyrannous, thus always to tyrants. Translation, if you want to rule over us, we will kill you. You will not tell us what is best for us. It's actually what John Wilkes Booth shouted right before he shot Abe Lincoln, sick, simper, tyrannous. You will not rule over us. You will not be in charge of us. We will be our own rulers. And we can say, oh my goodness, America, it's gone to hell in a handbasket. No, this is a human problem. Like the Virginia state flag didn't create the love of autonomy. (laughs) This has been since the garden, Genesis chapter three. God gives them paradise, Adam and Eve. They are living in the shalom and the, and the peace and the beauty of, of the garden of delight in Eden. The world is their playground. And there's one rule. There's one law that God gives them. And they decide, instead of having this glorious paradise, we would rather tell you, God, what's best for us, that we don't really care what you say about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We will decide if that's good for us or not. So we will go eat of that fruit because we think that's best for us plays out again in the book of Judges. If you know the book of Judges, it is a chaotic book and it's spiraling out of control. The book of Judges, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the author of the book of Judges is showing you the chaos that happens when people become this way. Do you know what the repeated refrain in the book of Judges is in the Old Testament over and over and over again? In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. I will decide what's best for me and look at the nation. That's what the book of Judges is all about. I get to be the king. I get to rule over me. And sick, simper, tyrannous, if you try to rule over me, I will kill you. That's what we're afraid of losing. And that's where our rage comes from. And that's what causes riots in Ephesus. That's what causes riots in our homes. That's what causes riots in our heart. And I'm talking about like like on a Thursday afternoon, like when your four-year-old is driving you crazy, and, and they get your rage, that rage is coming from a place because it's not just that I'm tired of dealing with you, it's that I wanna be doing something else than dealing with you right now and you are impending on my freedom to have the life that I want right now in this moment and now you're gonna get my rage because you are taking away my own rule. You are making ruling over you very difficult and so I don't feel like I get to choose what's best for me right now so you'll get my rage. There's just one ironic reality about this commitment to six simper tyrannous. And in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Is that this idea that we should be our own rulers and we will kill you if you try to stand in our our way. It's not just that we are unfit to be kings and queens. The irony of this declaration, this me loves me some me and no one can stand in my way, is that we actually end up becoming enslaved to that idea. We're not free. We think that declaring our own self-rule and declaring that we get to do what we wanna do whenever we wanna do it, we think that will set us free. It doesn't set us free. It's true. You have a will and you have rights. You have inalienable rights. You've been made in the image of God. We could talk all about that. The Imago Dei in you, you have rights. And yes, you get to choose a whole host of things about yourself, but do not be deceived. That if that is what is driving your life, that I get to decide what's best for me and no one can stand in my way, you will actually end up being a slave to that idea. You will be enslaved to the idea that you get to be the ruler over you. You will not be free. And the irony of this is that that enslavement is actually way harder to get free from 
because it feels so liberating to say, I just get to do what's best for me and I will tell you what's best for me and I will decide how to spend my money and I will decide who I wanna be and I'll decide who I sleep with and I'll decide what's best for me and my whole city and I will decide and you will not stand in my way. That actually enslaves us. It doesn't set us free. It certainly, certainly doesn't enlighten us. James K. Smith one of my favorite living authors has commented on this. He says, we've remade the human person into a protected and autonomous and independent self, free to determine their own good and pursue their own authentic path. We shut out the divine to carve out a privatized space to be free on our own terms, but we didn't realize the extent to which we were shutting ourselves in. Congratulations, modern man, he says. You liberated yourself by locking out transcendence. The price was sealing yourself in a cell. We thought we were our own liberators. Turns out we might be our own jailers. We're not as free as we think we are. And this is what, when the rage at the idol of self being threatened gets exposed in us, and then we usually double down on it, we actually, again, not only does it not set us free, it actually confuses us more. We're more confused. We're certainly more confusing, but we're certainly more self-confused and self-deceived. It happens in the passage. We don't even realize who we've become, and so we can't possibly see how lost we actually are. Look at verse 32. The riots happening, the theater, they're chanting, they're screaming, they're yelling. It took me like five read-throughs on this passage to go, whoa, 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 whoa. 32 is hilarious. This is like, this is like painfully, uh, this, is a, this is a painful observation of what's going on in the riot. Look, look at this. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Ah, kill Paul. Why are we screaming again? Like, what's the, I don't know why, I'm just angry. Someone said that myself was gonna be taken away and my sense of self would be destroyed. I guess I gotta kill somebody. They don't even know what they're screaming about. They don't even know why they're raging. They're confused and they're lost. So finally, a city official comes. This guy gets no more airtime, have no idea if he knew Paul, what, what his relationship was, if he was a Christian, no, no one knows. But a city official comes and calms the whole thing down. Here's what he says. Paul, Paul and his companions, guys, um, they haven't done anything wrong. And if you think they have done something wrong, the courts are open, take them to the courts, Sue them, challenge them, let, let the system deal with them. But this whole thing has got has to go away because he says, this little riot in the theater, you're gonna get us in trouble with Rome and they will come and they will squash us and they will not ask questions. You're putting, you're putting all of us at risk actually by this little riot. And so the assembly dismisses. But here's what's really interesting, a little subtle point that Luke is throwing in there at the word level. A really rare Greek verb appears in this passage twice. It doesn't really appear in ancient Greek literature. Um, doesn't really appear in other parts of scripture, but it's this, it's this little like uh, word play that Luke is doing in the passage. It happens at the beginning of the story and it happens at the end of the story. And the, it's the verb that means to be in severe danger or to be running a great risk of something. Like things are gonna get really bad if this doesn't stop, to be in severe danger. In verse 27, Demetrius says it about Paul. He says it, hey, he's causing us a great danger. He's putting us in severe danger by saying that gods made with hands aren't gods. But then in verse 40, when the, when the city clerk is trying to calm the theater down, 
The clerk says to the people that are outraged, he says, hey, actually, you're all causing us a great danger. You're causing us severe danger. Here's the point that Luke's making. The real danger in the story, the real danger in the world was not from Paul dismantling the idols, but it was from the outrage of the Ephesians. In other words, the real danger in the world is not your idol of self being destroyed. The real, the real danger in the world is not you losing your autonomy. The real danger in the world is how we act when our idol of autonomy is threatened. So the Bible is just suggesting to us the problem with societal breakdown, the danger of peace and shalom in our city and our world is not you losing what you think you cannot lose. That's not where the real danger is. The severe danger is in the outrage that we show when our autonomy is threatened. That's gonna kill it. That's going to destroy the world. We don't have to be afraid of losing our idol of autonomy. We don't have to riot. We don't have to outrage. We don't have to rally the city behind us. We don't have to try to keep it all intact. And I know you're afraid. I'm afraid. I know we're all afraid of losing the thing that we think we should have. We're all afraid of losing this sense of self. We're all afraid of losing our autonomy. We don't have to be afraid. Maybe what we should listen to here is we should be afraid of how we act when those things get threatened. So here's the the, the question for pondering. Who gets your rage? And what are you actually afraid of? And do you know why? Do you know what this grip on your own sense of self-declared autonomy that you get to decide what is best for you when it's best for you, that, that that death grip is creating a fear in you of losing it. And when that fear is, is poked, people get your outrage, people get your rage. Do you know, do you know that? And so here's, here's the follow-up question. How would we ever loosen our grip on that? How would we ever not be so afraid of losing our autonomy? And here's the answer, is that we believe that our autonomy gives us something and sets us free. And the invitation to lay all that down would be maybe we're wrong. See, instead of us declaring, if you rule over me, I will kill you, six emperor tyrannus, maybe we need an encounter with the Jesus who says to us, I do rule over you and I let you kill me. See, Jesus was the only truly autonomous one. Jesus was the only human who's ever been truly fit to be king. And he laid all that aside and let himself be trampled on. Luke will do this often in Luke and Acts where there's a story of Jesus and then he tells a story of the church or of Paul or of Peter that's remarkably similar to a story that happened to Jesus. And it's kind of, there's kind of a compare and contrast of, well, Jesus experienced this and now the church is experiencing this. But it always lends itself to go, well, yeah, the church kind of experienced this, but Jesus really experienced this if you kind of compare the stories. See, in the, in the Acts version of what we just read in Acts chapter 19, there is a crowd who's screaming and chanting who Paul has to be kept away from because if he goes to the, to the, to the tyrant crowd, they'll kill him. That's Acts 19. But at the end of the book of Luke, there's another person with a tyrant crowd chanting and wanting to kill him. And instead of his friends keeping him from that crowd, guess what happened to Jesus? He lost his autonomy willingly. He said, let the crowd have me. 
He put down all of his rights and he did not say thus always to tyrants, let's start the revolution. He let the tyrant crowd kill him. And so if we're ever not gonna be a threat to the world, if we're ever not gonna be truly dangerous to the world, if our rage and our fear is ever gonna not destroy people, you have to love Jesus more than you love your autonomy. And I can say that and I can say uh, th- this, is, this is the path to freedom, this is the path to health. Uh, but, and oh great, nice Jesus bow at the end of the sermon, preacher. That's not the point that you would go, oh, well Jesus lost his autonomy and so I guess I can lose mine. I guess it's, it's that there has to be, there can't just be a, oh I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna work on loving Jesus more. That's not how this works. You actually have to behold Jesus. You have to look at Jesus. You have to encounter Jesus, the one who lost his autonomy so that you could lose yours. But even in the face of you holding on to yours, he says, I still would lose mine for you. That there is a, a, a wrecking that happens when you see the king who laid aside his rights so that you don't have to fight to stay king. You need an encounter. And when you see it, when you ruminate on it, when you see and taste how much he loves you, you won't need your autonomy to give you what you think you want. You'll have Jesus and you'll have everything you ever need. See, affection is your path to freedom, not outrage. Outrage will not buy your freedom. But the love of Jesus can. See, you will love Jesus more than you love or more than you're afraid of losing your autonomy when you know that perfect love casts out fear. We just sang it. No longer slaves. You drown our fears in perfect love because we have been loved perfectly by a Jesus who said, I do rule over you, but I'll let you kill me to set you free. So let's pray and then sing to that Jesus together. Jesus, we, we demand to have our own rule. We demand um, to have our own self-autonomous declaration that we know what's best for us. And so would you woo us? Would you, would you uh, enchant us and draw us into beautiful acts of submission that would lay down before you our declared rights, our declared sense of self that we know what we need and we know what's best for us and no one can stand in our way. Jesus, would you melt us? Would we behold um, who you are and what you've done that we might, we might not be a people who are so filled with rage but we're filled with love because we have beheld our Jesus who loved us first. So in all this, we ask all this in your name, Jesus, amen.